When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. Like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling. Up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On today's pod, Lovett talks to New York State Attorney General Letitia James, who filed a lawsuit last week to shut down the NRA. Exciting. Before that, we'll talk about Trump's fairly useless executive actions, his continued attempts to steal the election, and new reports of more foreign interference by Russia. Cheery topics all around. Uh, <laughs> Lovett, how was the show this week? Great, love it or leave it. Naomi Agparagan, one of my favorite guests, joined for the monologue in OK Stop. And then I interviewed Senator Ed Markey and Congressman Joe Kennedy about the primary taking place in Massachusetts, which, which is an unusual one. And I was glad to talk to them. And uh, they both had uh, pretty, uh, you know, polit- political answers about Tom Brady. That's all I'll say. Was that an official sanctioned debate that you that you held? Uh, it was technically a forum uh, <laughs> because they did not appear on stage at the same time. Thank you for asking. Excellent. <laughs> Also, Ben Rhodes' new podcast, Missing America, premieres tomorrow, Tuesday. Ben has been all over the world the last few years speaking to leaders and activists about America's absence in the world under Donald Trump. He's looking into problems like nationalism, authoritarianism, and disinformation. It's a show that sets the stage for what's at stake all over the world with this election. So subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Exciting stuff. I can't wait. Finally. If you get a chance today, go check out Cricket.com. We got a brand new look, brand new redesign. Website looks fantastic. You can find all the episodes of our podcast, articles, our newsletters, all kinds of stuff. Cricket.com. Go check it out. Do yourself a favor. Check it out. Check it out. All right. Let's get to the news. Three months ago, Democrats in Congress passed a $3 trillion economic relief plan. In response... Donald Trump and the Republicans in Congress did absolutely nothing. I think Mitch McConnell said, oh, we're going to hit the pause button. I think he said at some point he didn't feel a sense of urgency. Then a few weeks ago, suddenly, the Republicans proposed a plan that cut unemployment benefits, did nothing to protect people facing eviction, and did nothing to prevent state and local layoffs of teachers, healthcare workers, first responders, and others. Democrats late last week, were offering to meet them somewhere in the middle. Republicans said no. Negotiations fell apart. So on Saturday, Trump himself announced four executive actions of his own 
on unemployment benefits, evictions, student loans, and the payroll tax. So, Tommy, after a few days of reporters uh, looking at the actual text of these executive actions, seems like they don't really do much for people. Uh, you want to walk us through the highlights of, uh, of these actions? Happy to. So there, there's sort of a couple parts. So let's take the unemployment insurance extension piece of this first. So Trump claims that uh, his executive order will provide a $400 expanded unemployment insurance benefit. But if you look at the fine print, only $300 of that benefit comes from the federal government. The EO says that $100 has to come from states. But as you guys know, states are already hemorrhaging money because of the pandemic. They're laying off people. They're furloughing people. They're cutting services. So there's just no way that states are going to be able to afford to pay that extra cash. It's also not at all clear where the $300 of federal aid will come from. He says it will come from reprogramming FEMA money, but it's a little squishy. When asked about this, Trump said, if they don't, they don't. That's going to be their problem, uh, meaning the states, if they don't pay these individuals. So much like coronavirus testing, he's taking the responsibility and just pushing it to the states, and he doesn't care if people get screwed in the process. Uh, the second EO is a payroll tax cut for Americans making less than $100,000 per year. But that obviously does nothing for the 32 million people who are unemployed. If you're not paying payroll taxes, a payroll tax cut does not help you. That seems obvious to me, but for some reason we're debating it. Um, it's also not likely to do much for workers who actually get it because companies will probably just withhold the tax anyway until next year. So there's no real benefit for you. He claimed one executive order will stop evictions, but that language doesn't actually reinstate the federal eviction moratorium that had just expired. Uh, or provide assistance to people who have fallen behind with their rent payment. It basically tells HHS to consider whether it's necessary to halt evictions. So even like last week, I think, like Monday of last week, very senior Trump administration officials were saying, we can't do what we need to do administratively. This can't be done by executive action. And then Saturday morning, we wake up and we are supposed to believe that, oh, no, they don't actually need Congress to act. We magically found a way to help everybody. So there's just like a ton of spin Nothing, there's not enough of substance here to actually deal with the problem. Love it. You got anything to add to that? Anything really get your goat about these executive actions? Well, I, one thing that was strike. So I saw that, you know, you, you two, uh, you know, my pod, my pod boys were tweeting about this as the president was doing it on Saturday. And I said, you know what? This fucking asshole has lied to me on too many Saturdays. I'm going to take a look at this Sunday night when I'm prepping for the pod, but I'm just going to like let this one go. I'm going to live my life. And it's actually striking how inaccurate and how hard to follow the reporting on this actually is. Yeah. Uh, you know, Trump, Trump proposes a payroll tax cut. Well, actually, even if you assume that employers will figure out a way through this Byzantine system to kind of put the money into employees' paychecks, it's not a cut. It's a deferral. They'll owe the taxes. They're really kind of pushing a problem to the future in a pretty extraordinary way, even if it is possible for companies to do this, which, as Tommy points out, is actually really difficult, and it's not clear that they'll be able to implement it. So, so it's not a cut. It's a deferral. Uh, it's not an eviction moratorium. It's like an eviction suggestion. It's an eviction <laughs> insinuation. There's no moratorium. There is no ban, though it was reported that way. Even in articles like in the times that were trying to break down what was in this. Uh, you look at the, the UI benefit, you know, John, you were pointing this out that, that wait, it's not actually an extension. It's a cut, right? Because if we actually extend the law, it's $600. This is $300 to $400. But, but in fact, because this is not based on the law, it seems 
unclear how or if or whether this money will ever be able to be distributed, certainly not in the immediate future when people are desperately in need of help, because it's being sent out to states that are already not just strapped for money, as Tommy pointed out, but extremely extended uh, logistically, practically, in their ability to kind of get payments to people and figure out what people need. Uh, and then you look at uh, the student loan piece. That's okay. Yeah, that's the, that's the that's the only one that offers like maybe some relief. Right. No, no, I think it's like it's it's super confusing because of how bad the actions are that like you people were just poking so many holes in them. Like I think you just need to know like if if you're one of the people who was getting unemployment benefits, you were getting your state unemployment benefits plus six hundred dollars a week. You're getting a cut no matter what. Even if states can pony up the dough, you're getting a cut uh, in in the benefits, and that means that's over twenty million Americans right now who are already struggling, who are out of work, who are going to face a cut, even if states can pony up the dough. At best, because it's an executive action, they had to like move money around from basically a disaster response from hurricane funding. It's only going to last mm-hmm. another five weeks at best anyway. So this is only an extension of five weeks because that's all the money they had. The poorest Americans aren't eligible for the uh, extension and unemployment benefits, which is also bullshit. And now you have, as you guys both pointed out, this Byzantine system of states trying to scramble to figure out what to do here. If you may be getting evicted, if you face the prospect of eviction, there is absolute, there's no more moratorium like there was from the CARES Act. There's just a bunch of people at uh, government agencies being told, you might think about protecting people if you can. <laughs> and then yeah. like, and the payroll tax cut is just so ridiculous. Like, yeah, so maybe in the next couple of paychecks, uh, not the next couple of paychecks because the businesses have to figure out how to like run this whole new system. Maybe they'll withhold your social security and Medicare taxes, but you have to pay it back at the end of the year. Unless by the way, Trump says, unless he gets reelected, then he's going to get rid of it for sure, he, he right. says, which he'd need Congress for. And that would basically destroy the social security trust fund so it's a promise to cut social security but a lot of the reporting also says but trump pledged not to ever cut social security it's like ah we can't do all of these things please stop i mean so love it like how much of this appears to be legal and i guess the broader question is how much should we be focusing on the legality because i do think as you saw us tweeting on saturday the initial conversation about this i think was mostly about it's unconstitutional. It's not legal. He's an authoritarian, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Chuck Schumer was on TV and he said, well, I'm gonna, I'll leave this to the lawyers. And, you know, he gets some shit for that. But like, what do you think about the legality question? So I will say that I came to this being worried that Democrats afraid of simply saying Donald Trump is being too strong on important issues would avoid the legality questions because on a, from a message point of view, it's better to focus on the fact that these are inadequate and won't actually help enough people. Totally understood that. As I sort of, as you kind of break these things down, the student loan uh, uh, memo is actually continuing what he did before Congress passed the CARE Act. It doesn't go as far as what the CARE Act does, but it seems like uh, is actually just something that he's done before. Uh, the payroll tax deferral, not a cut. You know, I see people like Ben Sass being like, this is constitutional slop. Payroll is, uh, you know, it's appropriated by Congress, whatever. And it's like, oh, wow, Ben Sass, you found your balls now that your primary is over. Terrific. But um, <laughs> great, great. Uh, but um, it's just a deferral, right? And, you know, we, we give the president broad emergency powers. I think the UI benefit is like the most, uh, it's certainly on a, from a philosophical level, like, like extra constitutional, like the president just creating a basically a new unemployment program. Then the Republicans come in and point out DACA and we have that argument again. Uh, um, I think my general view is that when these legality questions come up, it is a sign of how many kind of 
uh, congressional prerogatives have been surrendered to the executive, that it's actually always becomes this sort of morass of uh, when your side does it, it's okay. When their side does it, it's bad and what have you. I think one of the goals of the Biden administration has to be to work with Congress to limit executive authority, something that no president ever wants to do, but I actually do think is legitimately important right now, based on how feckless and silly a lot of these EOs are. And, you know, the fact that he's using emergency powers and taking money from disaster relief to go towards some of these actions, I would say focusing on the fact that they won't help enough people is the right thing to do. That's my long winded yeah. answer. Tommy, what do you think about the politics of all this? I mean, obviously, the Trump folks think this is all good politics. You know, they get to show the president breaking through Washington gridlock to get something done for people. Trump basically dared Democrats to sue him over the legality of this because he thinks I'm trying to give people money. And if they sue me, that's not going to be very popular. Um, uh, Are they right on the politics? Do they have a point or or what do you think of the political wisdom of these uh, these moves? I mean, in the short term, it's probably good politics, right? I mean, the press reported on Trump's actions. It made them sound bigger than they were. The the media narrative is now debating what Trump did or didn't do per usual, right? It's all focused on him. And sometimes he gets credit for trying. The problem longer term is that the pandemic is not even close to under control. I mean, right, like all the efforts to reopen have failed. Cases are skyrocketing. We're at like 164,000 dead. The PPP program has run out. So companies are going to start laying off more workers. States need money from the federal government because they're bringing in less tax revenue. And so like, I just think the 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 near term press hit uh, is going to get caught by the longer term economic reality. And ultimately, I do think he owns that. And I think the Republican Party, the, the party in power will own the majority of the fallout politically from a bad economy and from people who are really hurting. So, you know, maybe they're just banking on uh, on this EO announcement as a way to get some good stories, win a couple of days coverage as a bridge to a longer negotiation. But that is a it's a pretty big risk. Yeah, I, I think this is a fucking disaster for them. Like I, a, f- a few days coverage. I don't even know if they got a few good hours because like like Lovett said, by the time you get to Sunday and Monday, um, everyone's poking holes in all the executive actions. But look, like, you know, short termism is a problem in politics that like predates Trump, right? Like people try to do things to get through the news cycle. It is like debilitating for the Trump people, right? Like they can't even see past a couple hours past the statement, right? Like Donald Trump, in order to get reelected, needs a boost to the economy. He needed this package more than anyone else in Washington, except for the people who are actually fucking struggling right now. (laughs) The American people need it most. But in terms of the pure politics of it, he needs the economy to improve in order to win. If there is no deal, forget about just these four areas that he had executive actions for, unemployment, eviction, stuff like that. This means there's no more direct payments to people. That was supposed to be in the package. That means the uh, PPP program expires, which has kept a lot of people on payroll. This means there's no state and local aid. Democrats were proposing a trillion dollars. Now there's zero. No money for schools to help reopen. Think about how much money is going to come out of the economy because they failed to pass a deal. And what is that going to do to like next month's jobs numbers, the jobs numbers after that, the Q3 uh, GDP? Like this is going to be a fucking disaster for him. He needs this deal so badly. And... The craziest part about this is Democrats were willing to give him a good economy. (laughs) He is running for re-election. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer had fucking $3 trillion on the table. All Donald Trump had to say was like, yeah, he could have made a few, 
you know, a few changes here and there, a few compromises. He could have signed a deal that would have boosted the economy and helped his reelection. And he said no. It's it's amazing. It, it's you stop and you think about it, and you have Democrats, the the party out of power in terms of you know the the White House, the Senate, begging the president in power to let them help him boost the economy. Right? It's the exact opposite of what happened after the financial crisis. One other thing I just would add that too is it's the short termism. Like yes, he doesn't just need a rhetorical win, but it's similar to how in his interviews about the coronavirus, he can't say we have more work to do. He has to lie about how well he's performing. He goes in front of the uh, the fucking golf community of Bedminster and says, <laughs> and says, this bill will solve this problem completely. Right. He just, owned, he just, he's like, you know what? There was this whole mess in Congress. Maybe people were going to blame Congress, but you know what? I own it now. I own everything that happens from here because this is now my plan. <laughs> solve it completely. Like, I mean, it's <laughs> the, 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 you know, uh, uh, the secretary of housing should consider steps. That's the EO on evictions that he says solves it completely. By the way, even if Congress extended the eviction moratorium, it doesn't actually extend eviction moratoriums to the vast majority of renters Good who point. are not renting from places uh, affected by the congressional moratorium. Just like, here's the problem I, I see for Congress though, right? Which is the, the democratic message is we're trying to sound reasonable, basically. Like, we have a $3 trillion bill, we Democrats. Republicans have a $1 trillion bill. Let's meet in the middle at $2 trillion. But to get to that point, Republicans will need to resolve the intra-GOP fight. And I'm not totally sure that there's a path there because you have some of the moderate and even traditionally more conservative lawmakers who are like, we get it, we need to do something. And then you have like assholes like Ted Cruz and Rand Paul who have this philosophical opposition to more spending. And then you have like Reagan-era like white collar on a blue shirt supply side economists like Arthur Laffer, who are in Trump's ear arguing that all unemployment insurance benefits are bad and every policy should incentivize work. And like what I can't wrap my head around is how the discussion over the stimulus is so divorced from reality. 160,000 people are dead from COVID. We probably should be incentivizing people to stay home and not work but we're not really. Even the available data so far says that the more generous UI benefit isn't actually doing that. Trump's out there obsessed with a payroll tax cut, which by definition does nothing for people who are unemployed. So like Pelosi and Schumer are in this weird place where like they're dealing with Meadows and Mnuchin and all these guys who won't budge. They passed a deal months ago. McConnell refused to engage with them. And so like they're just getting both sides to death. And like, I believe strongly that we need to pass a real bill. It gets people money that helps people from getting kicked out of their houses, funds the post office, election security, like all these things. But it's just caught in this Republican infighting. And I'm not like, it's not clear to me how to fix that. So I'm so glad you brought that up. It's a very good point because I do think that that is the, it, it has not been reported enough that that's maybe the central problem in fixing this because, and I think the split within the GOP this time is between um, Republican senators who are vulnerable and up in 2020 versus the ones who want to run for president, maybe in 2024 and 2028. So you got the um, asshole who's in charge of the uh, NRSC, the, the, the Republican Senate campaign committee. And he's on Twitter and he's like, you know what, Republicans totally would have gone for a four-month extension of $600 a month unemployment. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer blocked it and blah, blah, blah. And Martha McSally wanted to propose an extension. And it's all bullshit because like, okay, then have Mitch McConnell put an extension through the end of the year 
for $600 a month unemployment on the Senate floor tomorrow. And let's see how many Republicans vote for it. Go ahead, put it on the floor. Because like yeah. McSally and Gardner and all these people who are, might lose their seats in 2020 actually want this to happen. And then you have fuckers like Ted Cruz tweeting today. Ed Markey was tweeting about his plan to give people $2,000 a month um, in direct payments um, for the course of the pandemic. And Ted Cruz is like, what's next? Free soy lattes? And, uh, what, what, you know, all this kind of, because like Ted Cruz doesn't actually <laughs> want to spend money because he wants to seem like the hard headed guy who cares about the debt when he runs for fucking president again or whatever. But it's absurd, you know? Can we just pause for one second? Uh, uh, Ted Cruz clearly hired a new social media guy. And the sole goal of that person's like job is to wake up in the morning and be the most annoying, lame troll you can possibly be and then log off. Like they're like tweeting about like Democrats don't like trucks and you're like a soy <laughs> latte boy. Like, is that effective? Is this really what we do now, Ted? Tommy, I'm worried it's him. I think it's I think he's doing it himself. Princeton, like Harvard Law, Goldman Sachs <laughs> wife. You, you're the you're the big pickup truck guy. Ted, is that, is that who you are? Ted. OK. It's always like very frustrating because soy milk is like four <laughs> fucking milks ago. You know, we have so like, like almond milk, oat milk. I mean, these are the milks we're talking about yeah. now. You know, these are coconut milk, right? Like there's a so yeah. variety of non-dairy milks yeah. um, that Ted could consider in his material. But I think we you can see this morning that Trump has begun to realize that he probably fucked up because he's now tweeting Schumer and Pelosi called me. Now they want a deal because so they did my executive actions. <laughs> and and Schumer and Pelosi are like, we never called them. And Democrats are like, we never called them. And White House staffers are like, no, there was never any call anywhere <laughs> from anyone. But suddenly now Trump knows he wants a bigger deal because he knows yeah. he needs the fucking deal. I wonder what Schumer and Pelosi do from here. Like, do they just let him sit around or do they just hold their leverage and say, come back when you're willing to do X, Y, and Z? I'm just imagining Trump... Uh, you know, wandering in his kimono on the top floor of the White House in like full on colloquy with Nancy Pelosi, who is not there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is like the good news. Look, I'm very worried about the state of the country, what's happening to people, et cetera. Like the good news for those of us who believe that getting Trump out of office is the only way we solve this long term is that I do think Biden is in a pretty interesting position here in that he's not part of the negotiations. He can just be a big picture guy, talk about what he'd do as president. And like you saw this in this long medium post he did in, in July, he's talking about money for testing and contact tracing and relief for states and, and governors, and just like painting a bigger picture of what it would be like to have a president that's actually responsible, that doesn't, you know, doesn't have to get into the weeds about the legality here. And he can say like, look at New Zealand, look at Europe, like these people are shopping without masks and hugging relatives. <laughs> like we could have a normal COVID response if we just tried. It doesn't have to be this chaotic. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that it, what just happened in Congress with this relief plan and what Donald Trump just did with these executive actions has handed Democrats more than enough content for the convention next week. <laughs> because, you know, the one thing in all these polls that's been keeping Trump even somewhat within reach of Biden is people trust him on the economy, although that advantage is sort of slowly disappearing. But I would talk about like, you know, we are facing one of the greatest economic crises of our lifetime. And Donald Trump's proposal was to cut unemployment benefits, gut Social Security and Medicare, 
repeal the Affordable Care Act and let thousands and millions of layoffs of teachers, healthcare workers, um, and other first responders in states happen on his watch in the middle of a pandemic. That's his economic plan. I mean, they just served it right up on the platter for Democrats next week if they're uh, if they're willing to go there, which I hope they do. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule Damn. is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to this. squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it, mm-hmm. more time for you. I, uh, you know, because we've been doing what a weekday. Mm-hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing at therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I added okay, therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking. That's going to make the jokes better. <laughs> Well, it's really going to make things better for the team. (laughs) (laughs) If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. All right, so we talked last week about the different ways that Trump might try to steal the election. There's now more evidence he's forging ahead, and he's getting plenty of help from the Republican Party. Politico reported over the weekend that Trump aides are looking into executive actions around mail-in voting, including, quote, everything from directing the Postal Service not to deliver certain ballots to stopping local officials from counting them after Election Day. We also find out that after Trump donor-turned-postmaster-general Louis DeJoy met with congressional leaders. He staged a shakeup at the Postal Service that, according to the Washington Post, quote, centralizes power around DeJoy and de-emphasizes decades of institutional knowledge. Meanwhile, Republican operatives in at least six states... More like DeSat. (laughs) They were calling him DeLay. Get it? Uh, So much better. It's so much better. And it's not good. Yeah, no, it's not good, (laughs) but you managed to make it worse. Meanwhile... (laughs) Meanwhile, Republican operatives in at least six states. More like to sucks. <laughs> Republican operatives in at least six states, so including Wisconsin, have been accused of using fake signatures to get Kanye West on the ballot, including names like Mickey Mouse and Bernie Sanders, <laughs> who now live in who now live in Wisconsin. Who knew? Um, so let's start with Trump's continued assault on mail-in voting. Uh, one of the consequences of not reaching a deal on another economic relief package is that there won't be money for the post office or election infrastructure. Um, Love it. What are the next steps on this for Democrats, for Democratic lawyers, for people? Like, what, what, what do we do from here? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing is continuing to fight for a relief package that not only includes funding for the post office, but actually puts guardrails on that funding to make sure that the money has to be used to, say, pay the overtime so that mail gets delivered on time, that there's no interference in the election, that it doesn't get held up, that they don't uh, uh, try to basically not spend any money that Congress appropriates if we can if we can get a bill through the Congress. Uh, you know, Dan, Dan Pfeiffer uh, of the Thursday pod uh, had some really good thoughts about this in his uh, new weekly newsletter because um, 
he needed another activity. Uh, and uh, but but he sort of walks through a lot of what we can be doing. And and unfortunately, I think we are quite limited. But it does involve Congress and us as individuals putting pressure on uh, Republicans and on the and on the post office itself. One of the things I'd add is the post office is incredibly popular. It's a very, very popular institution, and it is popular uh, outside of politics because it is how people uh, get their medicine. It is how people get their social security checks. It is how people uh, send each other gifts. It is how grandparents stay in, stay in contact with their grandchildren. And interfering with this nonpartisan, nonpolitical thing that matters to a lot of people, I think is a great way to spin up uh, calls to congressional offices of Republicans and Democrats alike. There is nothing like not getting the mail to get a bunch of old people to call their members of Congress. So I think <laughs> that, that this is a very stupid thing. One other thing I'd also say is um, uh, the one reason Republicans have targeted the post office for a long time is because it was a way to target some of the most powerful and important unions in the United States. And those unions have a lot of power here because they are inside of these institutions and we should rely on what they're saying and make sure uh, that we are uh, giving the postal unions uh, the support they need because those those mail carriers are the people ultimately uh, that will actually do the work of making sure that mail-in ballots are delivered uh, and mail-in ballots are uh, received on time. So Tommy, you know, if we don't get another package out of Congress um, and, you know, the post office remains a bit of a mess as it looks right now and mail-in voting is sort of all over the place you know on one hand we have our team of democratic lawyers and mark elias and all of our friends sort of suing people what can individuals do like if if you're voting you're trying to get other people to vote to sort of navigate this system yeah i mean there's some basic things which include you know send your ballot back as early as you can if you're worried about voting by mail a lot of places have drop off uh, cans basically where you can put your ballots. Um, but I also think there's a bit of this, that's just an awareness factor, right? Because so far Trump's attacks on the post office and vote by mail have been largely rhetorical, which don't get me wrong are bad. Um, but this report with them, like telling the post office not to deliver a ballot or prevent it from being counted is a threat to our democracy. This is not a boring debate about funding uh, of the post office. This is a crisis for democracy. And they're, you know, they're literally suing states like Nevada to keep them from sending ballots to voters. So, you know, one thing I, I remembered was a, a couple weeks back, Margaret Sullivan at the Washington Post had this great column about how the media can learn from mistakes we made in 2016 and not repeat them this cycle. Her first recommendation was to focus on voting rights and election integrity in coverage. And I do think the press needs to explain how serious this is and not let the conversation devolve into like the usual broken back and forth about voter fraud that doesn't exist, that just ultimately spreads misinformation, right? Like it's not inspiring if people wait in line for eight hours. It's outrageous. It's evidence of a broken system. And so, you know, thank God for like Mark Elias and all these lawyers fighting to make sure that ballots postmarked by election day are counted. A thing we can do to help them just mail your ballot as soon as you possibly can. Um, but we also just need to I think make a bigger case, and this is a long-term project about election integrity and voter access and voter rights. And like Lovett said, you know, Pelosi and Schumer need to fight like hell for that funding. Yeah, no, I think it's a it's an excellent point to really sound the alarm. And you know, uh, Mark Elias, the the Democratic lawyer who's who's fighting a lot of these fights in court, um, he said there's basically like four things that you can do in addition to what Tommy said, which is you know, vote early uh, in person. Right, 41 states now have early voting, so um, you're 
likely to be in a state where you can vote early. Uh, and of course, then you avoid the lines of election day, which could be dangerous in a pandemic. Um, use a ballot drop box, drop off your ballot at an election officer polling station. Almost all states now, you can drop off your ballot at your local election office or at the polling location. So you fill it out at home, you bring it there, and then you don't have to worry about the mail. And then there's also uh, the ability to organize community ballot collection, where groups can actually come and safely get sealed ballots from voters and then bring them um, bring them to the local polling location or the election office. So I do think that's something to think about as we get closer to an election where we may not be able to rely on the post office, which is fucking crazy. What was the fourth one? What was the fourth one? Or uh, There's vote early in person, use a ballot drop box, drop off your ballot at an election office or polling location. Oh, I th- and, those were two yeah, different sorry, ones. Those were two, two different, different ones. ones. Sorry, I, I went too fast. I went too fast. Organized community ballot connection. Um, okay. So Trump is also getting some help once again, from his old friend, Vladimir Putin. Uh, On Friday, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence published a statement by counter-intel chief William Evanina, who said that Russia wants to see President Trump reelected and is, quote, using a range of measures to primarily denigrate former Vice President Biden. He cites a pro-Russian Ukrainian politician who's been publicizing leaked phone calls to undermine Biden, as well as social media and propaganda campaigns. Evanina also said that both China and Iran do not want to see President Trump reelected, but that their efforts appear to be less widespread. Tommy, what did you make of the statement, uh, particularly the inclusion of China and Iran? Uh, so uh, this is total bullshit. Um, let me just let me just do like the backdrop of the context yeah. here about how Trump has politicized the intelligence community. So. A while back, Trump installed this Twitter troll named Rick Grinnell, who has zero intelligence experience. This jackass would have reported to me when I was at the White House, right? I was not qualified to be the director of national (laughs) intelligence. They installed him. They had him clean house, push out serious people, and install loyalists. And all of these hacks have pressured the intelligence community to change intelligence assessments to please Trump, something that would have been, should still be, a massive scandal, right? There was a long New York Times Magazine piece over the weekend It detailed how the intelligence community was pressured to change an NIE about election interference. An NIE is the most vetted, authoritative consensus assessment of an issue. They forced these guys to change the NIE and election integrity from saying Russia favored Trump to this watered down version that said Russian leaders probably assess that chances to improve relations with the U.S. will diminish under a different president. A very big, very material difference. So, we know that in 2016, the Russians ran a huge propaganda effort. That that effort is ongoing. We know that they hacked the email accounts of Democratic officials. We know they helped them leak them to WikiLeaks as a carve out. We know that they probed election systems in 50 states. I think we all should be worried that it will be worse this year. Now, the, the Chinese, they have sophisticated hacking operations. They have tons of overt propaganda and disinformation campaigns against the U.S., against policies. But there is no evidence, there's no reporting that they did anything as focused or as directed as what Russia did to help Trump, Trump their guy. I'm sure the Chinese now hate Trump because he's freaking out and he's escalating tensions with them all day, but it's nowhere near the same. Iran has like cyber operations and hackers and teams. But again, we, I, like, we've seen no evidence that they've done anything close to what Russia did. So this statement to me was designed to muddy the waters. We are now both sidesing the foreign interference conversation, and we have an intelligence community that is not telling people the truth, that we cannot trust to tell the truth because they have been so thoroughly politicized by Trump and his team. Doesn't sound good, does it, Love It? I, I, I read this story and I was just like, oh, fuck, now what do we do? <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's horrifying. <laughs> 
It's um, so one thing to note too that in that um, when I saw that the DNI had put out that statement um, saying that there was this interference effort, I was immediately like, oh wow, they're are they responding to pressure from Senate Democrats who are saying release this information? It's so interesting. And of course, you're immediately like, well, I see why they added Iran and China. It was to make sure Trump didn't feel bad uh, and to help themselves politically. And then you read the Robert Draper piece, this long, I think, you know, uh, long is among the many qualities it has. Uh, it's a good, <laughs> let me say, no, it's a really informative, it's a very, it's a very thorough look at politicization of intelligence. But the final note in the piece is that they put out the statement about interference after they got the questions from Robert Draper that laid out what Draper had collected. So they were clearly trying to get ahead of this time story. And then you have uh, 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 Senator Richard Blumenthal basically saying, what I have seen is chilling. Chilling. It is worse, it is worse than 2016. Uh, it is an incredibly sophisticated interference effort being run by Russia. Uh, it has absolutely no basis of comparison to what's ha what China and Iran may or may not be doing. Um, and you're left with this sort of pit, this sick feeling of we are exactly where we were in the fall of 2016, and we are running out of time to get this information into the political discussion. So t I was going to ask you about this, Tommy. So I see I see the Blumenthal op-ed. Um, that freaked me out even more than the, uh, this, the assessment that I had read the day before. Um, Natasha Bertrand of Politico asked Mark Warner if he would publicly disclose the intel on the Senate floor where senators are shielded from repercussions under the Constitution's speech or debate clause. And Warner said, I'm not going to take anything off the table. I'd never heard of that. Is that possible that senators can just like declassify intel on the floor like that? Yeah, I mean, yes. So in 1971, uh, Mike Gravel, who you might remember from several primary debates where he acted very weird, uh, he entered 4,000 pages of the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record. That happened just before uh, the Supreme Court lifted an injunction on publishing them. So it was a slightly different scenario. But yeah, I mean, when I saw Blumenthal tweeting some of these things, I thought to myself, look, obviously there's concerns about protecting sources and methods and making sure we're not, you know, getting people killed who are helping us out. But the point of having intelligence is not just to have intelligence, right? It's to inform policy. And if we think that the Russians are about to interfere in our election in a way that could disrupt the entire democracy, dis disrupt the entire democratic process, like elections are at the core of that process, then I do think it's completely appropriate. And in fact, maybe a moral obligation to tell people about this information. Sound the alarm. Let us know. Now, the, the challenge for anyone who decides to do this is not necessarily like the politics around releasing classified information. It's do we live in a time when people will care? Will, will the media both sides this? Huh. Will people pretend it's not a big deal? Will it just be split in a partisan way again? I don't know. But like, it sounds, I haven't read this intelligence, but it sounds like people are pretty freaked out. People in a position to know are pretty freaked out. And it feels like we should maybe be disclosing more information. Yeah, because, you know, lest we forget in 2016 when members of the Clinton campaign and Harry Reid and others started talking about Russian interference, the way the media treated them were like, oh, you're just saying that because you're worried you're going to lose. You're trying to make excuses, blah, blah, blah. They didn't take it seriously. Now, that was before we knew that Russia really did interfere in our elections. And so maybe um, maybe people have learned lessons from 2016. But who knows? Who knows? I do think it's a moral mm. obligation at this point. I mean, also, when you have an administration, as you were just saying, Tommy, like shading intelligence, 
estimates and assessments, right? Like for in politicizing intelligence. Um, and so like, if we can't trust that the intel we're getting from the administration is true and hasn't been, uh, you know, changed to help Donald Trump uh, and benefit him politically, then, you know, other senators who are getting briefings like that, what choice do they have? There is a, um, look, there is, I think, a legitimate concern, right? That if senators or members of the House begin to use the speech and debate clause to march down to the Senate floor or the House floor and just reveal intelligence, which they are completely constitutionally allowed to do, uh, that it sets a dangerous president that basically information is only as uh, protected and secret as one member of Congress decides. Basically, any member of Congress can break that rule. That's a that's a risk. But I do think at the very least, uh, it seems to me that like Mark Warner and others who are uh, seeing this information uh, could consider going much further, not just saying this on the table, but legitimately threaten to use their constitutional power to go to the Senate floor and tell us what they know to elicit more information from the administration. I think it is very much worth issuing a threat at the very least on this. Yeah. And look, in, in the likely Trump administration response will be to threaten to cut off uh, intelligence briefings for those members. But I think like you're right that that I think sets in in motion an escalatory process that that they can then say, we had no choice but to disclose this information. And I just think like Dick Blumenthal and these senators reading these intelligence assessments, they probably don't know the, the sources and methods, right? Like they don't know the person in the bowels of the Kremlin who's who's giving us this information. And they wouldn't and of course, they wouldn't disclose that if they did. You do always have to worry that like any leak of classified information can be reverse engineered. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know what sources and methods you could be harming. But again, like if, if these guys are this freaked out, tell us why. Yeah. All right. On that cheery note, when we come back, we will have Lovett's conversation with New York State Attorney General Letitia James, who filed a lawsuit last week to shut down the NRA. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at a dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Joining us on the pod, she's the Attorney General for the great state of New York, Letitia James. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. So last week, you filed a lawsuit to dissolve the NRA. While you and your team were conducting the investigation, was there a moment or discovery that made you realize you were onto something big, or was there anything that surprised you? So um, the, the facts lay bare on the front pages of just about every newspaper throughout this country, that the NRA had diverted millions and millions of dollars away from its charitable mission. There was a lot of infighting. It became public, and it was our responsibility and our duty and our mission to investigate. And so we launched an investigation in 2019, and we uncovered and confirmed certain facts. And that is, is that they were looting the NRA, and that they were doing it um, for financial gain for themselves, their family, 
and their close friends, and um, because uh, they wanted to favor, uh, they wanted to uh, um, get seek favor um, with individuals um, who uh, had the responsibility of investigating complaints um, by uh, complaints of whistleblowers, and so they attempted to curry favor with no bid contracts um, and side deals. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, we confirmed all of that and we've got a responsibility and a, a duty to make sure that individuals comply with the law and particularly not for profits that are incorporated in the state of New York. This has nothing to do with the second amendment and nothing to do with my personal opinion or views on, um, gun violence, but all to do with compliance with the law and ensuring that individuals adhere to our rules and regulations. So I, I understand going after the individuals, people like Wayne LaPierre, who found it impossible uh, to uh, fight for the Second Amendment without like a very lavish lifestyle. Uh, you know, you can't you can't protect gun rights without at least a beach house and a private jet. It's not possible. So uh, so you're going after him. I get that. Why also seek the dissolution of the organization itself? So let me just say. You can't, uh, um, listen, what does uh, going on a, a safari in Africa on, mul on multiple occasions have to do with the Second Amendment? And, and tell me, <laughs> what does the Second Amendment have to do with going to the Bahamas at least uh, eight times um, to well, add a cost? You want to be relaxed. You want to make sure you're, you know, you're well rested <laughs> for the at fight. A at a cost of more than $500,000. And tell me... What does the Second Amendment have to do with this post-employment contract for $17 million or for private security? Okay, maybe private security. Okay, I'll give you that one. Well, what, what about the, the lucrative consulting contract for ex-employees and board members worth millions of dollars? And what about the $1.2 million in gifts um, to vendors at golf clubs and at hotels? And what, what about that, the, the uh, Ackerman McQueen uh, advertising firm, where, which you basically used as a pass-through uh, company for these non-contractual, out-of-pocket expenses worth millions and millions of dollars, and I think it's $70 million. Can, you, can someone, I know you've got a very, very smart audience. I remember seeing them <laughs> in Brooklyn. Maybe one That's of them right. can tell me what that has to do uh, with uh, uh, the Second Amendment. But we are seeking the dissolution of the NRA. Why? Because the rot um, runs deep. It's pervasive. Yeah. It's throughout the entire organization. And it's important to know that this litigation is not against, not just against these four individual defendants, but against the NRA as a corporation itself. Because it's not just these four individual corporations. We're talking about a 76 board member, which oftentimes refused to uh, look into whistleblower complaints. In fact, they uh, evaded them. Um, it, it has to do with a audit um, committee that uh, unfortunately hid whistleblower complaints from outside auditors. It has to do with a compensation board, which paid these individuals excessive amounts of compensation. And the list of committees goes on and on and on. Everyone turned a blind eye and a deaf ear 
to the fact that these individuals and others were basically looting the NRA. And as a result of that, it left the NRA um, in, um, in a, a very um, difficult and strained financial position. So this is really nothing to do with the Second Amendment, nothing to do with politics, nothing to do with my personal views, and all the more to do with the not-for-profit law in the state of New York under which the NRA was incorporated uh, back in the late 1800s. So, you know, I've seen people, uh, you know, there've been, and I, and I hear you pushing back against this idea that, you know, you're doing this because you're against the NRA, you're against the second amendment, but it seems to me you've basically, you know, said to all of the NRA's donors, Hey, this organization that does something you seem to care about that you want to advocate on behalf of, uh, the second amendment has actually been wasting all your money. They've actually done a terrible job of advocating for your cause because they've spent all the money on yourself. If, if, if this was a climate change organization or, a or a healthcare organization, and we found out that they were bilking their donors, you'd expect people to say, Hey, thanks for figuring this out to make sure that we have a more effective version of the organization has anyone, any conservative, any gun rights advocate anywhere suggested to you that actually it was a good thing to root out corruption in this organization that they ostensibly view as being very important? Well, yeah, it's been all over, you know, the political spectrum. There are some conservatives who have said, thank you. There are others who have said it's political in nature. This is nothing more than a political attack. There are others who, again, bring up some rhetoric that I mentioned during the campaign about the NRA being a terrorist organization. But the reality is, is that um, we have a responsibility as the attorney general's office, which has supervisory powers and authorities over not-for-profits incorporated in the state of New York to ensure that the mission is actually carried out and that donor dollars are dedicated towards that purpose. And in this particular case, again, I mentioned what the safaris and trips to the Bahamas and um, multiple, you know, side deals and uh, no bid contracts. What do they have to do um, with their mission, with their charitable cause? And the issue is nothing. This was nothing more than self-enrichment, nothing more than self-dealing, nothing more than individuals violating their fiduciary duty to this organization. And so in addition to dissolving the NRA in its entirety, we are requiring that these individuals pay full restitution. And, you know, if in fact this had anything to do with the Second Amendment, the, the bottom line is, is that the law requires that this rested, that the restitution be used for their char- charitable mission. And so I am required to take the restitution and if, in fact, the NRA is dissolved, I am, I am required to distribute that, those funds to organizations that are consistent with their mission. We also seek to remove them from the leadership and um, to never, ever allow these individuals to serve on the board of a charity in New York State again. It's basically about accounting um, and about accountability. I imagine uh, Wayne LaPierre saying something like, you can get this money from my cold, very soft, very well manicured hands. Uh, one other. <laughs> so 
just beautiful hands. Absolutely. Like an incredible, just well, well taken care of hands. So, uh, how does the, this, this, um, uh, effort against the NRA compared to some of the other sensitive cases you've taken on, like going after, uh, the president's tax returns. So I can't talk about any pending case that we have or any pending investigation, but if people want to know the pre- what's the precedent for dissolving a not-for-profit, please remind them that it was this office that dissolved the Trump um, Foundation as well. Um, so, you know, we continue um, to, uh, again, make sure that corporations and individuals and directors and officers and trustees of not-for-profits uh, comply with the law. It's just as simple as that. And, and we filed this case for no other reason other than that. And in terms of the calendar, as far as the calendar is concerned, we concluded the investigation. Um, the, the issue is, should I have filed it now or, I, or, would I, or should I have filed it later? I would have been accused of politics regardless, um, but um, that's okay. Uh, that's why, you know, I put my big pants on every day. <laughs> Uh, one one last question. And I know obviously you can't speak to any pending matters that you're you're dealing with, but you know we're 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 three and a half years into this presidency that has challenged the basic rule of law in ways we've really never seen before, um, and it's put a lot of onus onto prosecutors at the local level, prosecutors at the state level. Uh, how do you feel uh, uh, these institutions are faring against in general? Um, against the onslaught from a Trump administration and a Trump Department of Justice that doesn't believe uh, the president is accountable to the law? Listen, we follow the facts and apply the rules and come to certain conclusions each and every day. And as you know, Democratic attorney generals across this nation have been defenders of our Constitution, of freedoms, of immigrants, of marginalized and vulnerable populations. We've been defending the census against attacks by this administration. We're in court right now as they seek to um, not include information from immigrants and try to change the date and shorten the process, which has, a, which has had a chilling effect on the response rate of the census. We have you know, stood up against this administration on public charge, on trusted traveler. The issues go on the environment over and over again. Um, on the LGBTQ community, on food stamps for low-income individuals. Uh, we continue to uh, litigate against this administration, and we've been winning because we recognize the rule of law, uh, we recognize the Constitution, uh, and we recognize that um, at this point in time, particularly during this point in time, what we need in this country now more than ever is someone in the, in the spirit and in the image of FDR um, to provide, um, who understands and who recognizes that the importance of having a safety net and who recognizes um, that uh, dividing Americans does not ignore and does not make us great. Dividing um, Americans um, just makes us, unfortunately, um, uh, a, a country which is, I'm just at odds with itself. And that's just not who America is. And that's why I urge all of your listeners, all of your listeners, no matter what they throw at us, no matter what they throw at you, we've got to organize, we've got to vote, 
We've got to fill out the census, and we've got to stand up for what's right, even against all odds, and even against powerful, powerful corporations and individuals who think that they're above the law. Attorney General Tish James, thank you so much for your time. You know, you were one of our favorite guests. The audience went crazy. You were such such a great, we had such a great time when you joined us at our Brooklyn show. And so hopefully at some point sooner uh, rather than later, we can uh, do that again in front of a, a live crowd in New York. Yeah, it will be sooner. And, you know, people keep your heads up high. When we come, when we get on the other side of this mountain, we're going to come together once again, and we're going to be stronger and more united than ever before. I thank you so much. I had a great time at that event. It was the highlight of my career, and I truly, truly appreciate wow. all that you're doing in this country. Well, you as well. Attorney General Tish James, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to Tish James for joining us today, and uh, we'll talk to you guys later. And I just want to say that I have second thoughts about my Ben Sass joke about balls, which felt very masked for me, and I just <laughs> want you to know that like, if I'm with you on like, you know, open to alternatives in the future. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> Welcome. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papa Dimitrio, Caroline Reston, and Elisa Gutierrez for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as videos every week. <laughs>